The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. So it ultimately turned out to be a worthwhile and enlightening experience. Did you get any of the answers you were after? It is difficult for me to accept, Captain. But Mr. Souter was telling the truth as he knew it. He is a man with an incredibly violent nature, living in an environment without any outlet to express it. I am surprised he was able to maintain his self-control for as long as he did. I guess in his earlier life he always found ways to release those impulses, like volunteering for the Marquis. What do we do with him? If we were home, he'd be sent to prison. The brig is the closest thing we have. But I don't think we can just leave him down in our dungeon for the rest of the trip. Nor would it be appropriate to leave him in the custody of someone in this quadrant. I agree. Captain, he is prepared to die for his crime. An execution. You're not seriously suggesting that we... I only mention it because of the extenuating circumstances and because he feels it would be an appropriate punishment. I don't. I prefer to rehabilitate him, not to end his life. We'll confine him to quarters. Work with Kim to install maximum security containment. Pardon me, Captain, but allowing him the comfort of his own quarters doesn't seem an appropriate punishment for murder. If we don't get home soon, he'll be in that room a long time, Mr. Tuvok. I think this is the best we can do under these circumstances. Crewman Darwin's three sisters might not agree. Good morning, London. It's Thursday, May the 6th, 2010. I'm Bob Metz. I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we will be with you from now till noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Welcome to our first show in May, where, as always, 519-661-3600 is the number you can call if you want to join in on the conversation today, or you can email us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. Today, our basic theme for the whole show is um, justice. Is there any, eh, Robert? <laughs> that's, that's the debate, <laughs> that's isn't That's the it? big question. Yeah. And today we'll be looking at uh, basically crime statistics, um, trial bans, secrecy, gag orders. Uh, is, is there real justice behind closed doors? Truth and sentencing, Harper, Harper's tough on, on crime bill. And, of course, do we intend justice? Is justice just something that we talk about in a legal sense, or is it a moral concept? And plea bargaining. And plea bargaining which is all part of it. And it's amazing, Robert. Um, I haven't really devoted a whole show to this singular theme. Yeah, I was actually surprised when we were sort of mulling over what we should be talking yes. about this week. This seemed like a natural, and you haven't really covered it yet in the 100 and what, 150 shows you've Well, done? yeah, today's the <laughs> 150th, in fact. Is it? And, um, but, uh, of course, what precipitated it, I believe, when we were talking was the uh, news items about the uh, supposedly temporary ban 
on the Tory Stafford case. Yes. And uh, which was very reminiscent of what happened with the Carla Homolka case, in which um, basically yours truly got a little bit involved personally. And I have some video from some inquiry uh, where you hear a debate on the secrecy about that and the issue of sentencing, too. What is fair sentencing? But the place to start, I thought, would be uh, to take an overview of, of how people actually feel about the communities they live in. Do they feel safe? Do they think the crime rate's going up? There's a perception that it is, but we're always being told it's going down. Well, uh, I took a look at that, and I pulled out my trusty files, and sure enough, I had so many articles on this subject. Fascinating to see the contrast. Uh, Terry Pedwell, London Free Press, July 22, 2009. Headline reads, Crime rate continues to drop, where it is reported that a steadily dropping crime rate will not deter the federal conservative government from cracking down on criminal activities, says Justice Minister Rob Nicholson. We don't govern on the latest statistics, the minister told the Canadian press in a telephone interview. And then they note that Manitoba's murder rate was 50% higher than second place Alberta. Uh, The minority conservatives in Ottawa have been pushing their anti-crime agenda hard this spring, introducing 11 pieces of legislation. Just one of the bills passed, increasing the penalties for people convicted of gang-related murders. And that was last year in 2009. Then I see this other headline, Horror Undermines... Oh, yeah. Yeah, undermines crime statistics by uh, Michael Tendant at the London Free Press, August 1st, 08. Now, this is the year before. Um, gun and, and gun crime in Toronto is spiraling out of control, it appears. And yet there is this oddly discordant fact, according to the latest numbers from Statistics Canada, overall crime has declined for the past three years. From 2006 to 2007 alone, the changes are substantial. Winnipeg shows a decrease of 12.9%, Montreal 13.8%, Toronto 11 Calgary 8.4%, Ottawa 5.1%. You get the general decline picture here. Mm-hmm. So if Canada's actually becoming safer from a crime standpoint, why the impression that we're in ever greater personal peril of being beaten, robbed, shot, or stabbed? And that's the question Michael, Van, uh, Michael Dentant asks, and I think it's a question we're going to attempt to answer here soon. Here's another one, uh, April 24th, 2009, Free Press. Crime Index shines good light on London. Well, you wouldn't know that from last night, eh? Just what's been going on <laughs> with, with the Molotov, Molotov cocktail, cocktail yeah. the weird, and, and, uh, and another uh, sexual assault in the city downtown. And there was a murder on Country Lane, there was and a murder over on Balcaris. But we're, we, we have a safe city, and then that's what the article says. Londoners can take some comfort knowing they live in a relatively safe city. This is by Joe Belanger. Statistics Canada has developed a new... Violent Crime Severity Index. Ah, now we see the culprit. It's much different from the crime rate, which can spike wildly. In other words, it's a truer measure of crime and safety. The fact remains that violent crime plagues every city, town, and rural area. area. Conflict, evil, drugs, uncontrollable emotions, and hate are part of the human condition. And as populations increase, so does violence. Um, I don't agree with that. But, um, you know, in absolute terms, maybe, but not in rates. And that's what we're seeing. Per capita rates. Yes, you're that's, about, yeah. what it's, that's why it's not even on. It's interesting. I wonder what uh, the severity they would put on selling pot seeds. I don't know. But <laughs> well, in Canada, maybe zero. In the United States, maybe ten. Yeah. <laughs> and that's one of the issues of justice, isn't it? Yeah. And uh, then, then he writes that while the new measure may shine a favorable light on London, we no longer live in the 1950s or earlier times where it seemed people's lives were guided by religion, morality, 
a sense of right and wrong, compassion, and caring for strangers. These are different times. Lock your doors. That's the concluding sentence on, a, on an article that says, Crime Index shines good light on London. <laughs> so didn't sound too good. But isn't it interesting, the religion, morality, sense of right and wrong, those were the subjects of our last two shows that we pretty well It's also something on. that probably we should get into, into into the future because if you look at societies where there is a um, homogenous set of values and codes, for J- Japan, for example, the crime rate is mm-hmm. very, very low. But if you come into um, countries with um, large, which were built on immigration from all over the world, different values, different sets of beliefs, well, now different you're getting morality. into a pretty politically uh, unpopular Well, I, I don't statement. care. You know something? <laughs> I'm just sick and tired of people saying that you can't talk about immigration because you're a racist. That's well, absolute nonsense and bunk, of course. But that, maybe that's a talk for another show. Yes. And now here comes the other side of the point of view, and it's Lori Goldstein coming to the rescue. Who I found two articles that he did on the same subject using the same stats, but r- written a year apart. One was on July 1st, 2008, and the other one was October 22nd, 2009. And the first one was called, The Stats Are a Crime. <laughs> and the second one was called, Hug a Thug Crowd Needs to Check Stats. Okay, So he's aiming that directly at Captain Janeway, who believes in rehabilitation there. So, so he says, he writes here, quote, Today, let's take a break from the BS we're being fed about global warming to examine the BS we're being fed about crime statistics. First, let's examine what the crime rate actually is compared to years ago, as opposed to what we've been told it is. Here are some figures you probably don't see widely quoted in the media uh, when Statistics Canada releases its data on falling Canadian crime rates. First, and he's referring to 2007 basically here, the the database. Uh, First, violent crime is up 320% since 1962 when modern records first started being kept. Second, property crime, which many victims don't even bother to report anymore, is nonetheless up 75%. Third, the overall crime rate is up 152%. Then he reports that in 1962, and I quote here again, there were 221 reported violent crimes per 100,000 population. In 2007, there are 930, a 320% increase in the crime rate compared to 62. There were 1,891 property crimes per 100,000 population in 62, 3,320 in 2007, a 75% increase. The overall crime rate was 2,771 incidents per 100,000 in 1962, but 6,984 in 2007, a 152% increase. Any graph, he writes, that accurately tracks crime rates, this is almost like talking about the, the, the hockey stick graph in global warming. I kid you not, this is what it reminds me of. Shows a steep increase throughout the 1960s, 1970s, 1980s, peaking around 1991, then falling relatively slowly ever since. Oh, and by the way, uh, I also should state that the, the rate was uh, this, this was happening both in Canada and in the United States simultaneously, and they don't really know why. They didn't, they didn't offer any explanations other than possible demographics. I've got a few suggestions. We'll get a- into after that. you're yeah. done, I've uh-huh. got a few suggestions on that. But he says the key word is slowly. While it's true that the crime rate has been decreasing since 91, it has never returned to anywhere near the far lower rates of 45 years ago, particularly for violent crime, the one that law-abiding people most care about. The hug-a-thug crowd today uses a relatively small post-1991 drop in the crime rate to argue that since crime is going down, we don't need to toughen laws or impose stiffer sentences. 
That attitude was best summed up in a 1971 speech to Parliament by then-Liberal Solicitor General Jean-Pierre Goyer. Complaining about the high costs of keeping criminals incarcerated, he said, and this is a quote of him, The present situation results from the fact that the protection of society has received more emphasis than the rehabilitation of inmates. Consequently, we have decided from now on to stress the rehabilitation of offenders rather than the protection of society, end quote. And then uh, Laurie Goldstein writes, he says, yes, you read that right. (laughs) Remember it the next time someone tries to tell you that the crime rate is down. And then under the uh, heading, my own heading of insult to injury, he adds this too, and and he reports from from a 2004 StatsCan survey. And this this is sort of letting us know that what we're just talking about was the tip of the iceberg. Progressively fewer Canadians who are crime victims are reporting crime to police. Only 34% in 2004. Think, think so the rates we're hearing are 34% of supposedly the total. Compared to 37% in 1999, and these are all fairly current, 92% of sexual assaults are never reported to police. 46% of break-ins, 51% of motor vehicle parts theft, 61% of physical assaults, and 54% of robberies. I never could understand that. If they're not reported, how do we know that they happen? Statistics Canada re- gets people to, to put it on a, a StatsCan report. It's, it's just like the census, right? They're not going to the police to report it. They're just asking a question on the census. Have you had a crime incident? Did you report it? Yes or no? That's all. That sounds to me to be a rather nebulous way of trying to judge whether or not a crime has actually been committed. No, I was talking about people who've had some crime committed against them. I could have easily been one of them a couple of weeks ago. You know, my car got busted yes, into yeah. and it cost me 500 bucks. I was on the edge of whether I should uh, report it or not because it was rather minor damage, relatively speaking. But the police said, oh, yeah, you have to report that. And I imagine a lot of people in my position might not have. And then if yeah. I got a stats can report, I, I can see that being very realistic. Yeah. And if you can't trust that, then you can't trust anything stats can Are is you telling you. Trust, trust stats can? <laughs> well, <laughs> not really. But again. And then he says, he writes again, he says, yes, you read that right. And uh, now here's the killer. The reported crime rate also excludes federal drug offenses. Odd, given the huge role drugs supposedly play in violent crime. Small wonder the crime rate is going down. A, he says, <laughs> with that Canadian touch, eh? So uh, you, you, you said you had a thought in mind when I was just back there reading something about the... Uh, yeah, just very quickly on, on why the rates may or may not change. And I don't know if this is accurate or not, oh, yeah. but just, just something off the top of my head. First of all, I think there are more laws to break. Um, remember, they're talking violent crime and property theft. They're really st- sticking to those categories. Well, actually, at the very we're not talking first about you know tax evaders <laughs> and uh, people who well, have there's always uh, been tax evasion, at least since 1917. You know, been caught with their cell phone in their car or something like yeah. that. And that's another point too: is that it's so easy now to report a crime with everybody carrying around a cell phone in their pocket. All you have to do is witness something, and boom, out comes your phone. Nine one one. Hey, I think they're suspicious. Yes. I've done that myself on more than one occasion had to call 911 because of something suspicious was going on. And, um, and the pl- police showed up. So there's that as well as communications between now and 1962. Can you imagine trying to call the police in 1962? You'd have to find a phone, probably a pay phone, whatever. It's almost like technology inflation, eh? And we have to, <laughs> we have to write it into the equations, do we? And not only, and, and Is one that what more you're thing. suggesting? <laughs> <laughs> one other thing would be that I think, and I might talk about this later on, is that uh, I think that the prison system, the, the punishment, the incarceration has become a lot more lax 
now than it was in 1962. I mean, if if Carla Hamokin can get a, an educate uh, was it a sociology degree at our yeah. at our expense, you know, well, you've got the television, you've got shortly. you've got gymnasiums in prisons. I mean, it's almost like a, a spa when they go there. Well, so where's the deterrent? Where's the punishment? It, little, it seems to be a little lax. You know, de- whether you regard a jail as a spa depends on the person who's being incarcerated and that you're talking about. There's it, an article you know. in today's paper. If uh, you're talking uh, about uh, Carla Homolka, it's a spa. If you're talking about some poor Joe who's just been tossed in jail in, innocently, yeah, article it's in a today's paper. A guy went and robbed a bank here in London, the TD Bank on Dundas Street, because he wanted to go to jail to get off his addiction to uh, Listerine, I think, or something oh like goodness. that. And so, yeah. You know, so it depends whether it's a, your perspective, whether or not it's a spa or actually a lifeline. Well, people have always been trying to propose solutions to you know keeping society peaceful with not very much success. Uh, coming up in this next break on the other side of the bumper, I have to let you know what you'll be hearing. You'll be hearing a 1995 uh, partial debate that took place on Channel 10's Inquiry here, CFPL-TV, and this was back on November 18th in 95. Uh, Carla Homolka was still in jail. Um, She had two years to go, I believe, on her um, 12-year sentence, and there was a petition being organized to lengthen her sentence. And um, then what we will hear here is a debate over whether that petition and the... the, And it's interesting listening to this, Robert, in retrospect, because we already know what's Mm -hmm. happened now. And with the Tory Stafford issue coming up, let's hope that this doesn't happen again. But it's interesting who takes what side and, and on what issue. And we'll be hearing from lawyers Paul Carter and Gordon Cudmore on one side of the issue versus Gwen Hunter and Gordon Dom on the other side of the issue. Gwen Hunter was uh, the um, petition organizer and Gordon Dom was a fellow I got involved with when he got in trouble with the uh, Attorney General of Ontario at the time, Marion Boyd, who interestingly I debated frequently on left, right and center. Um, with ex-OPP officer Gordon Dom, who was uh, bringing U- United States news reports into Canada, because the internet was just kind of getting going then. People, I remember there was a, it was called the news groups then, that's where you could find out yes. what was going on with the Homolka case. So the American papers were reporting that Can- Canadians were prohibited, and, and Gordon was bringing papers back and letting Canadians know and getting into all kinds of trouble with the law. But that's, an, that's one of the reasons he got into trouble. So you'll be hearing that one on the other side of the bumper. So right now we'll take our first break and we'll continue the conversation on the other side. Why did you kill him, Mr. Souter? No reason. That is not a satisfactory answer. You must have had some motive. I didn't like the way he looked at me. Just how did he look at you? Like a lot of people in Starfleet do. So this murder could in fact be explained as an outburst of rage against Starfleet. Look, if that's how you want to look at this... I want the truth. I don't like Starfleet. I won't deny that. But... Yes? I have killed people who weren't in Starfleet for the same reason I did not like the way they looked at me. I've thought about killing you, Lieutenant. In my case, you have a motive. My previous mission as a spy. My role as your accuser. But to my knowledge, Crewman Darwin had done nothing to you. That's true. Then why choose him as a victim? I don't know. Do you feel remorse 
I don't seem to feel anything at all. Most Betazoids can sense other people's emotions. I can't even sense my own. So what's going to happen to me now? I'll have to discuss that with the captain. I know what I'd do if I were her. Guess I'm lucky. Federation doesn't execute people. We have a new petition, thanks to Senator Ann Cools in Ottawa. This has gone federal. And this new petition is very identical to the one that we have, except it's to lengthen her sentence. And hopefully that will happen. We're going across Canada with it. And let's get more signatures. And let's see what Carla Holmes I, I'd like to ask Gwen a question. Oh, all right. Okay? No. Now, if a deal's a deal, I yes. mean, there was a deal struck, and in fact it was committed to writing, if the Crown is going to be prepared to back out on their part of the bargain, how are they going to restore Carla Homolka to her original position? In other words, give back all those statements, all those taped confessions, give back her testimony at trial that she gave, in, that convicted uh, Paul Bernardo. How do you put her back in her original position? If we're going to set Are aside the deal... Are you talking retroactive here? Yeah. If we're going to set aside well, the deal, let's put the parties back to where they I were initially. I think the crucial argument with lawyers is that, that they're concerned about the retroactive part of this. Well, I'm not a lawyer. I'm only a, a layperson from Dundas, Ontario, who is instrumental... He was instrumental in starting this petition with three other ladies, and I'm saying to you that the general public is fed up. We want things changed. We the want the judiciary system looked at. The general public gets charged with a criminal offense, and then they rush off to a defense lawyer looking to do a plea bargain or a plea discussion. And that's plea why we shouldn't have plea bargains. But did you fail results? yet with the bathroom? I mean, what you're talking about with retroactivity is you've got a deal that a lot of people are upset with, and that's understandable uh, that they're upset given the nature of her crimes. But, you know, you, when you start doing about retroactive justice, you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube af after it's out without completely breaking the tube. And if you're going to do that, if you're going to try and change the law to get Carla, I submit that you're going to create serious problems with the legal system in the future in terms of future plea bargaining, and in terms of future cases. And I would that maybe we need to create serious problems for the legal system. But you can't do it retroactively. Well, we'll uh, try. You, know you can't change the rules after the game is over. Oh, I, well, I disagree with that. Gord, you, you can intercede well, here. Well, look, look, Bill S-11 carries out a provision that goes right back to common law in, in the British uh, system that we derive from in law, that Parliament is above the courts. Oh, no. Just hold on a second, please. All right is above the courts and so far as the sentencing aspect is concerned. And if the Parliament of Canada, both the upper house and the lower house, were to approve Bill S-11, Senator Cruel's bill, they could lengthen the sentence to a life in term instead of a 12-year term for Carla. And there's been a case in England that was, that was changed accordingly, the same way. This was an attempt to change the Clifford Olson sentence, but the Parliament of Canada wouldn't support it. But if they support this bill, it is legal for the Parliament of Canada, if they pass it both in the House of Commons and, and in Senate, to change that sentence without no. going back to the courts. That's and wrong. That's, that's just what they can do legally. No, they can't. I mean, you go back to the field of running meet where they signed the Magna Carta, which said the king is not above the law. 
And it's the this same is thing. not the Par king. This it's is parliament. the parliament of Canada. Parliament. It's the parliament of Canada, and the parliament of Canada is not above the law either. And that's what you're saying they are. The, if the parliament of Canada doesn't like what the courts and the law say, then we'll just override it. You can't do it. You can change it in the future, change we're the laws. We're not changing the, the convention. We're not changing, we just you can't change changing the, the sense where there was a grave miscarriage of justice. And that's probably how most Canadians feel, that it was a grave miscarriage of justice. I certainly do. Uh, absolutely. Uh, welcome back. You're going to just write on CHRW 94.9 FM. And we are talking about justice. And what you just heard was uh, lawyers Paul Carter and Gordon Cudmore versus p uh, petition organizer Gwen Hunter and ex-OPP officer Gordon Dom at the end there. And that was um, broadcast back in 95. We're going to hear more from that clip a little later on. But what do you think of that, Robert? Well, it actually brings back memories. I followed that case fairly closely, like most people did in this province and country. And the world, actually, it was quite a case. And, and I certainly felt... I don't know what the word is, perhaps cheated, when we, when we know today that Carla Homoko's out there now, well, under a different name. And you certainly didn't get a sense of any, anything justice being done, did you? No, no I didn't, and, and that sort of begs the question, what's justice anymore? Well, that's, that's, we want to end the show up with that, and yeah. we'll, we'll try and resolve it in the way we normally do. Actually, people, found, are, I, people are saying that we don't have a justice system, we have a legal system. Here at all justice the time. Justice is gone in this uh, country. There seems, certainly seems to be a disconnect between the justice and legal system, if they are even one and the same. But we're interesting debate there about Parliament being above the courts. Now, I'm pretty sure Gordon Dom was being clear in saying with regard to sentencing and what is a due sentence, not with regard to interfering with determining the guilt or innocence of the person. I don't think that debate was there. And I think they got a little bit off track there, you know, arguing about a lot of non-essentials there. They get more into the essentials later on. So were you saying that Chris Bentley, when he says that there's a complete separ separation between our legal system and the parliamentary system um, regarding the Tory Stafford publication ban today, um, that he's incorrect, that there's not a complete separation, that there is something that the uh, Attorney General can do when it comes to these things. Of course. And yeah. it's the same situation, for example, that Mark Emery finds himself in waiting for, uh, you know, Canada's justice minister to sign or not sign an extradition paper regarding his sentencing for something mm -hmm. he has done or not done. I don't even know if they're arguing about that anymore. I thought in interesting, too, was that haunting performance from Voyager... Um, yes. by the sociopath. It's almost like Silence of the Lambs, uh, Voyager style. And interesting how uh, Mr. Tuvok was so concerned, as are so many people, with motivation, motivation, motivation. I don't think that's where we should be looking. I think we should be looking more at intentions. Because when you get into motivations, that's you've opened the whole kettle for hate crime, for all sorts of side issues that have nothing to do with the action itself that's being prosecuted. Uh, I think motivation is more a key than, um, you know, or sorry, incentive or in, in um, you know, actually intention is more of the key than motivation. That's what I'm trying to say. Uh, what don't they have the three criteria for for uh, thinking somebody's a suspect? Uh, motivation, opportunity, and method. Isn't it the uh are those are three criteria they look that at? That I'm not too sure about. I couldn't argue on that. Um, but that may be just for, for finding somebody uh, who may be a suspect, not necessarily for finding him guilty. I, I actually agree with you. It's intention, not motivation. 
when you talk about motivation, I don't think the victim cares. <laughs> well, listen, before we continue our conversation on that, why don't we hear them con- conclude theirs? Because I think there's some fascinating issues that come out of that. And then from there on, we got the basic last half of the show to take, the, take it where we want to. Okay. Okay. We're going to take a break now. We're going to hear more from that same debate between uh, Paul Carter, Gord Cudmore, Gord Cudmore um, Gwen Hunter, and Gordon Dom that was originally broadcast on Inquiry back in 1995. And we'll be back after this break. So where do we go from here? Is there a real likelihood that this deal is going to be reopened? Well, I I would hope not. And I would hope that the present system uh, pretty well stays the same because I think it works. I think what we're doing is taking an isolated case, a special case, but they're not looking at the system as a whole. I think generally plea negotiations and plea discussions work. It's cost efficient and I think there's benefits to the administration of justice. For example, I mean, we're saving money because uh, 80 or 90 percent of criminal uh, matters get resolved by way of guilty plea. Uh, if we had to try all of these things because they couldn't be resolved, we'd be, our deficit would be uncontrollable again. Uh, there's benefits to victims. I mean, you sometimes have a 6-year-old or a 10-year-old or a 40-year-old person that doesn't have to testify at a preliminary inquiry, doesn't have to relive it at a trial. I mean, there's benefits to other witnesses, there's benefits to counsel, there's benefits to judges, there's benefits all around. And I think the system uh, works generally, and going back to Gord's initial comments, uh, he said, I mean, uh, plea negotiations or discussions are between Crown Counsel, Defense Counsel, and perhaps the police. Ultimately, the judge is the one who stamps it or not. Mm -hmm. And the judges can control uh, and exercise discretion over the Crowns. That's very interesting. You talk a lot about the the trust between the Crown and the prosecution and the judge. What about the trust of the public? Making deals with criminals uh, so they can get off later, and certainly the Homolka case is a prime example of how she did get off later. But and the, the Crown's, secrecy, the I'm sorry, I'll let you deal. talk a little longer the than Crown I talked The Crown's part so of the deal, don't forget that. Now listen, these deals are unconscionable. The, the pr- basic principle of the founding principle of criminal justice is equity before and under the law. Plea bargaining distorts sentencing. It, it puts it out of kilter. It causes distrust from the public. They don't know what's going on behind the court scenes. And then we have an inquiry to add insult to injury that's going to be secret with only a prepared report submitted at the end of it. Double jeopardy against a very fragile justice well, system that we have today. Double jeopardy, no question, is what you're trying to impose on, on Carla Mocha. But that, that aside, the, the one point that you make that, that I agree with, it, it does come down to a question of trust. with it it does come down to a question of trust and that's why a plea bargain cannot remain closed when my friend talked about the Martin report uh, endorsing plea bargaining what he was saying was that it must be done and then it must be approved by a judge in open court right so that the facts are very given interesting so okay, that, this, then you admit that this plea bargain of Monka was approved by Judge Kovac yes it was of course now, it was and it here was we have here court. we have a, a brother experienced judge sitting on a review that's going to be secret. But you, they're all brothers. I mean, judges are independent, and they don't, you know, one thing I will say, they couldn't have had a better choice to do this well, particular inquiry that. in terms of Pat Gallagher. Quite right there. But, I mean, 
all the judges are brother well, judges. I'm so just saying to make it secret. Do you agree with the secrecy? I don't think it should be secret. I don't think it should be. I think it's improperly focused. I think it should be focused on the tapes and the investigation, not on the deal. I just would like to intercede. I, I would like to say that Carla Homolka should, uh, pardon me, Carla Homolka should not have any rights at all. What about the victim's rights? Here's a woman who's given all sorts of liberties. Here's a woman who's now in prison. She's using her computer. She's going to university and getting an education. My daughter went off to university this year. She had to get a loan. Carla Homolka commits the most horrendous crimes in the history of the Canadian legal system. And there she is. The She's getting rights. She gets to plea bargain. I'm sorry, I have a problem with the plea bargain. I don't know why this woman has been allowed to get away with what she's got away with. The and I say again, 320,000 signatures in the province of Ontario agree with me. And I say to you that the plea bargain system does not work. And that's was, only the start. Wanna, she's got a new this. petition backing Ann Cool's right. bill, and there'll be another 300,000 on it. And Paul, let me tell you, I we get our this. million no, signatures from across this. Canada. Paul, Paul. I want to add this. You're talking about the victims' rights. The victims, and the, particularly the victims' families, were consulted in this case. And the French and Mahaffey families approved this deal. They right. approved this deal. But we and don't you know what the client told them. We, we don't know how they were led down the garden path, and I suspect they were led down the but garden we don't, path. I mean, you've got to deal with the facts you got before you. I mean, one of these is going to happen. You throw out plea bargaining, I'll tell you who the victims are going to be. The victims are going to be the public. Because, as Paul said, your legal system, like it or not, the criminal justice system is going to grind to a slow halt. And it's not well, it didn't grind to a slow halt in Alaska. They've abolished pre-bargaining <laughs> there five years ago, and they took a three-year survey, and the amount well, of time spent in the court process on convictions was lowered, lowered from what it was when they had plea bargaining. And further, George, it's not secret, because as Gord said, if there's a resolution reached between Crown and Defense Counsel, parties go in the court, it's referred to on the record in open court that there have been resolution discussions, that a resolution has been reached, and here's the position. And sometimes it's not a joint position. And welcome back to uh, Just Trade on CHRW 94.9 FM. You can join us at 519-661-3600. Fascinating discussion there between those, um, those uh, participants at an inquiry show. Bob, do you have anything to, to add about what you just heard? Well, it was interesting to hear the disagreements about you know, who has what authority where. And I think there were some, you know, differences of, of opinion there. And, you know, some lawyers tend to argue what is, but citizens tend to argue maybe what ought to be. Yes, <laughs> you know? well put. And, it's, and um, it, what was interesting, too, was how Gordon Dom pointed out at the end there that Alaska, for example, abandoned plea bargaining and it shortened the court system, which only mm -hmm. makes sense to me. Yeah. I was just hearing a silly case on, on another station today about a guy fighting a, a speeding ticket, yeah. and they want to plea bargain him, and this speeding ticket is going on for months and months and months in and the court. And he's lost his job, he's lost his fiancée, he's lost, he lost his home, just so, trying know, to fight it. What, just what the hell is justice? Is that? And then the thing that I found utterly, utterly... I don't know what's the word, disgusting, offensive, was the whole entitlement thing that the lawyers were expressing when they said, well, the reason to, to make these deals with criminals is because of the benefits. Oh, yes. The benefits to the costs. We, we save on the, on the deficit. We save, you know, save the benefits money. to victims, save to counsel, to judges. Benefits, benefits all around. Um, justice, anyone? Hello? Anybody out there? Knock, knock. Didn't hear that word come up. And I up. think that's exactly what the woman who was bringing the petition was saying. 
Uh, yeah, and I think she had a point. Now, at the other, on the other side, you know, am I totally opposed to some sort of deal-making? I don't know. I, I can't really say because I can understand how every time if you had to plead guilty and um, that would clog the courts up more possibly. But, of course, Gordon Dom says, no, the Alaska experience proves that to be incorrect. Very interesting. So, you know, I think we should take a closer look at these things, and certainly I have to agree the trust of the public is is not there. It's 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 just getting more and more eroded. It's, it's an abuse of the system, I think. Mm-hmm. Plea bargaining, maybe, as you say, in certain cases, but when it comes to something as, as, as heinous, heinous the crimes, as that, no. Yeah. Um, certainly in property rights cases, perhaps. You uh, either yeah. have the facts and the evidence to convict somebody, or you don't. And, and remember, me, we are talking about criminal law here. We're not talking yeah. about contract disputes. We're not talking about you know other things that the courts get tied up with. Or drug laws that the courts get tied well, up. That's a whole other issue. I think that deserves another show or two. But it just brings us back to what is justice. And I said that before, uh, earlier on in the show, when when the Homoka is treated the way she is, so leniently, you say, well, what is justice? And I had to actually go back. Where I usually go back, I go back to Ayn Rand. And uh, I found this little quote from her. Well, we're going to have lots of definitions of justice today, then. Yeah, I know that you've got some McMurray in your back pocket there. (laughs) More more than that, too. Well, Rand said, quote, Justice is the recognition of the fact that you cannot fake the character of men as you cannot fake the character of nature, that you must judge all men as consistently and conscientiously as you judge inanimate objects, with the same respect for truth, with the same incorruptible vision, be as pure and as rational a process of identification that every man must be judged for what he is and treated accordingly, unquote. Now, you might think that I bring this this quote up uh, because to refer to a juror's judgment of the accused, but I don't. I bring it up as a reminder that a judge must judge a juror with the same standard that he judges an accused, with the same respect for the truth, with incorruptible vision, A judge must assume that the character of a potential juror is not going to be corrupted by information he may get of a case before it is heard. And I think that's what this publication, and I don't know that this is the reason, Mm -hmm. but I suspect that this is part of the reason that we have publication bans. So that jurors out out there are not so called corrupted by information before it's actually brought to trial. I, I've of, often wondered about that. Oh, well, I wh- think whether that you can even be corrupted that way. That's my point: is that the judge has to judge a pre- uh, prospective juror with the same conscientious reason that he would judge an accused. Don't treat them as idiots. If the only pool of people we select for juries is one populated by people who do not read newspapers or watch the evening news or are not up to date on current affairs, then the quality of jurors is not going to reflect the general populace. Such an ignorant juror may not be among the peers of the accused, and that would be unjust. So it should suffice that a judge ask a potential jurist if he's capable of judging a case based solely on the evidence provided at trial and to disregard any hearsay or innuendo gleaned outside of the trial. If there's no reason to consider that a jurist lacks integrity, then the judge should accept that jurist's word, that he'll be objective. I found some quotes in the newspapers recently regarding um, these blackouts. Superior Court Justice Ian Nordheimer said during the trial of Jarrell Simpson-Rowe, the first person to be tried in the case of Jane Kreba, that 
quote, the fact remains that the public has a right to know. The public has the right to fairly evaluate whether justice has been done in any given case, unquote. And I'd agree with that. Justice Peter Corey wrote in 1989. I think I got this from the National mm -hmm. Post. Quote, the courts must be open to public scrutiny and to public criticism of their operation by the public, unquote. And, and you go back a hundred years to Justice Lyman Duff in 1909 said, quote, it is of vast importance to the public that the proceedings of the courts of justice should be universally known. And I say that, and he said, universally, I mean, right now, this publication... Well, does that, that include knowing that they're secret? <laughs> we, we all universally know that's, they're that's secret. That's the odd thing about this particular publication, Ben, is that the extent of it. All we know is that one of the accused was scheduled to appear at a pretrial hearing. We're, we're not even allowed to report, the media are not even allowed to report, whether or not even she showed up. You, you know... That, to me, doesn't I, I, seem right. What has never sat sat properly with me was, first of all, the contention that if you're going to be a juror, you're, you're, you're an idiot if you've heard or read anything in the paper about the case you're going to be a ju juror on. Mm -hmm. I've often believed that even if you go through something in life misunderstanding something, even if you haven't got the facts right, when you run into the facts, you'll remember them doubly well because you have something to compare them to. And you've been shown to be wrong, and that, that, that makes That's an impression right. on you. It does. And so if I was reading in the paper that X was happening in a case, and I get into the courtroom and I found out, wait a minute, it was exactly the opposite. Wow, is that going to stick with me? Yeah. It's not like I'm going to forget that. So if I'm an objective person at all, so the issue is objectivity. And, and just it, it, what are they telling us, that the newspapers cannot be relied on? And, and the irony is whenever they put a ban on, and this happened with the Homolka case, they allowed all kinds of just BS to be running all over the place. But boy, if somebody was caught telling the truth, they targeted that person. <laughs> and that's how you knew who was telling the truth. Isn't that ironic? And, and, because, and that's why I always say all censorship bans reality or some aspect of it or some yep. truth. You will never see fake stuff banned <laughs> or misinformation. It just won't because it's, it has no value to no, anything. Mind you, I think that there are instances when the details of a trial like, should yes. and could be blacked out. You know, I suspect that there are instances, um, very rare instances, possibly a case where evidence may affect national security, especially with all the terrorism things going on today. That might be a case for a blackout. Or perhaps when there is a clear threat to somebody's life. You know, somebody testifying against another person, probably don't know, want, want to know the public who and where that person lives and all this kind of thing just to protect his life. That, that's a very rare case and a very specific case. Otherwise, the openness of the courts is essential, in my opinion, to justice being done. The incidence of trials being conducted out of the eyes of the public or the press seems to be increasing. And if the rate continues justice in this country, I don't think is going, to, is going to be a thing of the past, I think. Now, they say that because, okay, they have a publication ban. That doesn't mean that the public can't go into the courtroom. But to tell you the truth, so, so 20, 30 people go into the courtroom. If they can come out of the courtroom and say, well, what happened in there? And they, and they can't say anything. What's the point of that? I, I don't even know if that's constitutional, let's say, or even, you know metaphysically proper in any way. It just doesn't make sense to me. Well, there was actually a test, and again, this is from a Free Press article. Let me see here. The Free Press article called Stopping the Press, and it was on May 4th. It says that there's a um, Degenay-Mentuck uh, test, which arose out of a series of publication ban cases. It requires anyone seeking, seeking a publication ban 
to show there is a real and substantial risk to the right of a fair trial. The risk must be grounded in the evidence, said the Supreme Court in its 2001 ruling. Now, media lawyer Ian McKinnon, who's um, representing the media in this case, trying to get this publication ban lifted, said it's not sufficient to point to pretrial publicity as evidence to support a ban. Now, I, I would yeah. I would seem to fall onto his side of yes. the argument. You know, he just I can't think the, say the justification for a ban has to be something in the case itself, not with publicity and the things going on out in the community that just doesn't make sense to me. It's very, very curious, and I think that if this case isn't blown open at the end, at least when the publication ban is lifted, we find out what's going on, um, we, we really have to, as Dalton McGinty said, oh, the truth will come out, you know, we'll find out eventually. Yeah. Well, I certainly hope so, Mr. McGinty. Yeah, he's a guy I trust to say that. Yeah. Use that word. <laughs> well, listen, let's take a quick break for a smile, and we come back on the other side. We'll take a look at the more philosophical side of this. We certainly can't solve all the problems of uh, justice and injustice on one show, but we're going to try, and we'll do this subject again, of course, more on future shows. But first, quick break for a bit of a smile, and we'll come back on the other side. Do we intend justice? and what the, exactly that means. Speaking of criminals, that's another difference. In the United States, organized crime is called Cosa Nostra. In this country, it's called the Human Resources Department. cover doesn't make any difference I had to tell you today anyway I'm glad you glad about that I don't have to lie to you anymore lie I'm a CEA agent you are a CEA agent and you really did kill someone Fascinating, isn't it, Don? And I suppose it's the conditioning of motion pictures or television. Perhaps it's the time we live in. But killing is serious, and yet this little card somehow makes it less shocking and acceptable in a way. You mean you can actually legally kill someone? Yeah. And it bothers me sometimes because I don't feel guilty about it. Don't you think that's psychotic behavior? No, I don't. Oh, it explains your utter lack of hostility. You can vet your aggressive feelings by actually killing people. It's a sensational solution to the hostility problem. Doctor, are you trying to tell me it's all right to kill people? It's simply a moral question. Morality is a social invention. And in this case, society has decided that it's not only morally acceptable for certain people to kill other people, but it's even commendable. I don't think the CEA would like that. I don't think they'd like it very much either, eh, Robert? <laughs> you ever seen that movie, The President's Analyst? No, I haven't. Oh, Robert, it's it's a hoot. It's really funny. Who was the actor there? James movie? Coburn. James Coburn. And um, it's it's sort of in, in what was the ones in like in like Flint and Our Man Flint. Yes. It was <laughs> sort of like that. And it was had a really bizarre edge to it. Turns out the bad guys in it was the telephone company. And, and I, I'm Thanks telling for giving you, it away. Well, it does. It <laughs> won't make any difference to the movie, trust me. But it was, you know, 
basically says there, of course, that uh, the idea of justice and, you know, if it's okay to kill somebody is an issue of morality, and it is, of course. And certainly it is true that societies, uh, certainly in self-defense, you can kill somebody and there are issues of war, and perhaps secret agents uh, can do so with legal immunity. I don't know about the moral issue. And that was what part of the humor of that that show was. It was one of those black comedies, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. But uh, no, I was reading, uh, you know, our favorite, one of our favorite philosophers, John McMurray, talking about justice, and 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 uh, I like the way he defines things and looks at justice in a, in a, in a very clear way. I think, and he talks about justice being a moral idea, and he and he says that yet when we consider its place in the system of moral ideas, it has this curious ambiguity. From one point of view, it's so meager and universal a virtue, it hardly seems to be a virtue at all. kind of reminds me of gravity, you know, how they call it a weak force, and yet it holds everything together. It expresses the minimum of reciprocity and interest in the other personal relation, what can rightly be exacted from him if it is refused. We contrast justice with mercy, with generosity, with benevolence. And he says, I can demand justice from myself for, uh, for myself from others and even enforce it, but I cannot demand or enforce benevolence or generosity or affection. And that's an interesting thing. It's, it tends to be a negative thing. It has to do with uh, almost, you know, the, the enforcement of something, using force. In such conditions, justice seems essentially negative, a kind of zero or lower limit of moral behavior, he writes. On the other hand, justice can appear as the very essence of morality, without which the higher virtues lose their moral quality. The care for another which fails in justice loses its moral character, whatever other moral qualities it may display. From this point of view, justice seems to be the sine qua non of all morality, the very essence of righteousness. Without justice, he writes, morality becomes illusory and sentimental, the mere appearance of morality. Now, here's something he writes that's interesting that certainly applies when we talk about being benevolent and kind to prisoners. He says, to be generous without being just is, is to be generous to some at the expense of others. Doesn't that sound like somebody else we know? And so to produce a, minor, a minor mutuality which is hostile to the interests of the larger community. To be more than just to some and less than just to others is to be unjust to all. He says, there is, for instance, a kind of generosity that's completely self-interested. If in my relation with you I insist on behaving generously towards you and refuse to accept your generosity in return, I make myself the giver and you the recipient. This is unjust to you. I put you in my debt and refuse to let you repay the debt. In that case, I make the relation an unequal one. Interesting point of view, eh? Mm -hmm. He says, in that case, you have to be continually grateful to me, but I not to you. And he says, this is a kind of tyranny in a way. And he says, when people care for each other, it is only moral if it includes the intention to preserve their freedom as a free agent, which is your independence of me. That's what he thinks is the moral relation, that, that, that people don't bind each other with all these, you know, using altruism, using things like that. But now, coming down to the whole issue of justice and government, you know, this is fascinating. He says, as long as the society was small enough for all its members to know one another, there was really no need for the state or for even legislation. The custom of life was sufficient to provide the rules necessary and the sanction of public opinion enough to see that they were kept. And he said religion and education were the main key things that kept the family together and extended the spirit of the family into the community. That's what he sort of sees as religion. But he says a necessity for the state and for politics arises with the breakdown of the customary community of direct personal relations. 
Politics, in fact, and in conception, emerged with the breakdown of the self-sufficiency of the city-state, as we misleadingly call it. He writes, through the introduction of coin money, a market economy, and overseas trade. It was the growth of a system of indirect personal relations, superimposed upon the direct relations within separate communities that made politics a necessity. Law began, began to differentiate itself from custom, individual interests from the in- interests of society. So our question is not historical, but philosophical. How can justice as a universal moral obligation upon all persons and relations be discharged when the relations are indirect? The answer must lie in the invention of a mechanism which will automatically adjust the relations between individuals. And that mechanism he calls law, and it was conceived by the Romans. And they were the ones that figured it out. The same same system that, that we're working under today as a device for keeping the peace. The problematic of law might be expressed by defining it as the minimum of interference with the practical freedom of the individual which is necessary to keep the peace. Too little interference and equally too much will make the law inefficient for its purpose. For in either case, it will provide a motive for a breach of peace. The motive is a sense of injustice, the feeling in individual or groups that they are being unfairly restricted relative to others. Don't we see that all the time? Yes. Especially between racial groups, how we're treating our aboriginals, the whole thing in, in Caledonia, different groups being treated differently under the law. But of course... Should, should we just be obeying the law? And this is, I think, the kicker as far as John McMurray's concerned. He says, we must go farther, however. If it should happen that conformity to the law would involve me in acting immorally, or even in doing something which to the best of my judgment would be immoral, I am under a moral obligation to refuse to conform to that law. Whatever obligation I may have in respect of the law, it certainly cannot take precedence of a moral obligation. We cannot just distinguish morals and politics and leave it at that. We have to understand their relation to one another, even if only to enable us to devise laws which will not come into conflict with the requirements of morality. So he talks about the state being basically you know, a public utility, really, and we have to look at it that way. It's there to inst- institute justice. And unfortunately, when, when you have... Um, different states and different jurisdictions and this is the problem we have between Canada and the states and and everywhere in fact economically it's becoming an issue look what's happening in Greece yes everybody's trying to operate under a, a, a common code of law and that one sort of more economic but it can't work because of all the different cultures that exist under that that not shared system of values you can't have a functioning market of any type free or otherwise if the constituents within that market don't operate on the same principles, right? So if you had one very um, uh, frugal and and not spending community, like one of the countries in Europe, let's say, that was very responsible in its spending, now tied together with another country that that is irresponsible in its spending, you can see the problem. And the response, who who suffers in a relationship like that? It's always the responsible ones. And that's, uh, you know, he says, where trade develops between independent states to a point at which their citizens become interdependent in a settled system of economic relations, then you have a society without common law. You don't have a common law anymore to see, in order to try and secure justice. And he says the various independent systems of law are then incapable of securing full justice, even within the territories which determine their limits. Each separate state must then use its power to control the whole economy of which it is only part in the interests of its own citizens. So laws perverted into an instrument for the defense of privilege 
and for the perpetuation of injustice. Sounds like Canada. It, it sounds like what's <laughs> happening in, all around the world. Unless the independent states can unite by common consent, and that's very important, under one system of effective law, they must destroy one another in a struggle for power. This happened in ancient Greece, and it destroyed the Greek way of life. And it's funny he's talking about Greece, yes. because it's the same thing, and it's the same reason, and it's the same principles, because isn't it ironic that, you know, the most, demo, quote, democratic country on earth where it originated is having this problem? Mm. Nothing ironic about that at all, actually. But he says it's happening today on a scale that involves the whole world. He says the principle which governs such a situation is this. Without justice, cooperation becomes impossible. But if the cooperation is compulsory, then it must become a cooperation in mutual self-destruction. In the political field, the condition of avoiding this catastrophe depends upon intending justice. And this is incompatible with the worship of the state, which is the worship of power. You know? So there you have it, power in the hands of some or justice in the hands of all. That's kind of the big picture, isn't it? It is, and I'm glad that we have at least some semblance of freedom of speech in this country where we can actually put a check on the abuse that you're talking about. It's interesting because that was one of the key uh, measurements that a lot of people use in terms of where a country becomes totalitarian from just statist, and freedom of speech is one of those key issues. Right. Well, I think we're out of time for today, Robert. I think we've got to get out of here, and hopefully everyone will join us again next week as we continue our journey in this right direction, eh? We don't know what we'll be doing next week, but do be back here, be right, and be right back here next week, same time. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the clothes, everything will be all right. Hello. Don't you hate it when right after you pick up a hitchhiker, then you pass another one that looks way easier to kill?